Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And sadly, an increasingly dissenting opinion in the United States is supporting freedom, rights, and liberty for everybody. That's right. In the land of the free and the home of the brave, the brave are apparently very, very, very afraid of people who want to be free. Specifically, there is a growing movement trying to limit the freedom of educators to teach, healthcare workers to fulfill their Hippocratic oath of refraining from causing harm or hurt to their patients, and for gay and trans people to be, well, gay or trans. And the people who are opposed to those liberties include the so-called Moms for Liberty, who are not only against the liberties of others, but claim they are for parental rights. However, they not only oppose liberty, but they have nothing to do with expanding anyone's rights, only limiting them. And they don't even know what parental rights are if you, when you ask them to define them. So, what is the real goal of groups like Moms for Liberty and supposed parental rights organizations? It's to end public education and replace it with private religious indoctrination camps, as well as undermining any hope for universal health care. In a few minutes, we will be schooled on the Moms for Liberty and their real agenda when we speak with poet and essayist Kay Gabriel, who posted the N Plus One magazine article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble public support, popular support for public education. Kay is a writer and organizer based in New York. With Andrea Abikaram, she co-edited We Want It All, an anthology of radical trans politics. She's the author of the poetry collection, A Queen in Bucks County, and Kissing Other People or the House of Fame, all from Night Boat Books. Her writing has appeared in N Plus One, Jewish Currents, Descent, The Nation, The Brooklyn Rail, and elsewhere, all publications we featured here on This Is Hell. She taught at NYU, Cooper Union, Bard, and Princeton, where she received her PhD. She's the editorial director at the Poetry Project and organizes with the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Producing today is Chris Kulfan. Chris, what was what are your plans for the upcoming holiday? Uh, in my household, my girlfriend has a Thanksgiving ban, so because uh, we're we try to decolonize. So I know it sounds weird. Uh, so we're having a Star <laughs> Wars day, pizza, Star Wars. Actually, we're going to an Indian buffet and then Star Wars. Do you know which place you're going to for Indian buffet? Uh, it's it's somewhere in Bridgeport. I can't remember the name. Oh, really? Up. Otherwise, I can't. She usually picks these places. I just follow like a good puppy. So I don't know. But you live here in the neighborhood, though. 
That's true, but the Bay Fizz at a good price in Bridgeport. But yes, I've been to like 10 different places here. So yes, in Devon for sure. I love when people ask me, so what Indian restaurant do you go to? And I'm like, well, there's 200 of them in the area. So if I have gone to one, it may or may not be in business anymore. So, uh, but I do love the food up here. And shadowing Chris today is Will Ippen. Will, how is your week going so far? So far, so good. How about those Alouettes, oh, by the my. way? That was a great end of the game, wasn't it? Yep, much better than the Bears game. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right, let's stop talking about football because yep. people will turn off the radio. Yep, sorry, guys. <laughs> so if you listen to our special exclusive bonus weekly show on Patreon, you know my plans are to not have Thanksgiving with family members who live across the street from the site of an old Indian boarding school which means that I won't have to go through the cognitive dissonance of enjoying a huge and delicious meal while being fully aware of atrocities done to children in the name of white Christian supremacy. Although we should all be fully aware of those crimes against humanity at all times, especially during this holiday, a holiday indigenous recognize as the National Day of Mourning. So for everyone listening, myself included, let's not forget to take a moment and remember what is lost, but also what is being found again, and that is many of the rituals and customs as well as the languages of indigenous peoples, which were nearly gone forever, as well as an increasing respect for First Peoples and their traditions. Also, our deepest sympathies to the people of Winnipeg. Sorry for the Blue Bombers listening, or losing. Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell is, what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? (laughs) We will have, uh, we'll be sharing your question from hell answers, all of the stragglers that are left left from earlier this week, including uh, answers that were left at our Facebook page, our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page, Discord, Twitter, email, all of that, and we'll be uh, sharing all of that following our talk with Kay Gabriel on the real agenda of Moms for Liberty that are in fact against liberty, opposed to the freedom of teachers and doctors, as well as anyone who is gay or trans. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us on x at thisishellradio. You can post it in our uh, Discord community on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Chris, what is Jeff talking about this week? Uh, this week, uh, it's, it's uh, me. Jeff suspects the COVID lockdown broke humanity's brains. <laughs> Coming up, the anti-gay, anti-trans movement behind groups like Moms for Liberty is really about ending free quality public education by empowering the state to censor curricula. Chris shares... The rest of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what will be happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll also tell you what's happening next week here on the show. And like I said, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering another moment of truth. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And the future, at least, at least I thought, I thought it was supposed to be 
one of expanding freedoms and liberties for all, no matter their race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexual preferences, gender, whatever. It was supposed to be more liberty and freedom for everyone, no matter who. However, there's a group called Moms for Liberty who, in reality, want to limit the liberties and freedoms of educators, healthcare workers, as well as gay and trans, pe- trans people on an effort to replace our free public education system with for-profit religious training schools. Pretty frightening. Here to explain, I am incredibly happy to have on our show Kay Gabriel, a writer and organizer based in New York who recently posted the N Plus One article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble popular support for public education. Kay, welcome to This Is Hell. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on. This is absolutely fantastic writing this is just really great stuff and there is no way we're going to be able to get to every point that Kay makes in her writing so make certain that you go read her article over at n plus one you begin by writing in may of this year a local leader in the el paso colorado chapter of moms for liberty named the actors she believes are behind a coordinated effort to make more children come out as trans or gay Teachers unions, our president, and the left, they said. She then named teachers unions twice more, painting them as the primary antagonists in a campaign to erode parental rights. So, Kay, I'm not trying to justify uh, or legitimate their beliefs, but what is the uh, foundation of such beliefs? What do groups like Moms for Liberty believe teachers union are promote? how, How do they believe they are promoting gay or trans lifestyles yeah totally um so i'll just i'll answer that by saying it's surprising one thing that i really want people to see uh and that i was trying to clarify in writing this essay is that you know in the past year a number of people have been really shocked and horrified at the advance of anti-trans laws and an anti-trans social movement in lots of parts of this country and, you know, the UK, um, Brazil, many other places, right? So, you know, people are are sort of witnessing this really regressive, um, um, very, I'll say, um, hateful, um, in some places, very violent movement that attempts very explicitly to um, uh, make, um, to uh, 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 eradicate being trans as a social possibility. And the thing that I wanted people to see, by, and the reason why I kind of, picked the Moms for Liberty example, because I think it's very illuminating. It's not an outlier. It's actually really central to this campaign, is that the attacks on trans people are actually not just about, they are, uh, they are like, about. yes, certainly they are about policing trans life, but they are also about disabling and incapacitating centers of working class power. And so what so what you see in in what does that mean concretely you see a group like Moms for Liberty 
um, which is a right-wing darling with, yes, a lot of grassroots support and also like really major funding um, uh, from the right-wing of the Republican Party. You see this group attacking teachers' unions as the uh, uh, the uh, people responsible for children um, coming out as trans. And so this is all over. And that that's actually really surprising, right? Like we should we should note that, you know, that's like that's kind of a weird thing for them to say. If you were going to just sort of look at that rationally, you would say, well, that hasn't actually really looked like it's true. Teachers aren't super focused on like protecting teachers unions haven't been super focused on protecting trans students in particular, although we might think, well, they should start making that an explicit goal. However, if you look at why the people who the architects, if you look at why the architects of the anti-trans panic unleashed it when they did, it starts to become more sensible because you understand how these this thing is actually also an attack on the power of teachers to set working conditions and learning conditions for their students. I'll, I'll maybe stop there and I'll see I'll see if, you, if that is kind of like starting to make sense. Yes, it is. It's definitely making sense. Uh, so sure. how do Moms for Liberty see what they understand as parental rights being threatened by teachers? What are the rights they see as threatened by teachers? And their unions. And, and is this a union decision or are the decisions that are being made on the ground in classrooms really not governed by the unions as much as they're guided by the individual teachers and the curricula at that school? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you can. So on the one hand, like, so how do Moms for Liberty frame like, how do they frame teachers unions as the antagonist in this fight? It's it's all over their press page. Like they talk about they talk about teachers unions all the time. They refer to teachers unions as evil. And then they'll say things like, you know, they will call teachers groomers. Um, they'll show up at school board meetings and say, oh, this policy that, you know, they'll they will advocate for policies that um uh, force teachers to out students to out trans students their parents they will advocate against policies that protect trans students and queer students um uh, uh so this is this is let's say the kind of like the basis on on which they they organize um I, I mean in terms of like is it the union like teachers unions are not the ones that are setting like classroom policies or school board policies for what like how teachers should engage with queer and trans students that's that's really not like what unions have been bargaining over which is instead like living wages decent working conditions um at the same time um what the like when you look at what like you know moms for liberty is as i say in the piece it's a far right front group um, and it's getting funding from people whose goal is to whose whose many goals include um, uh, um, degrading popular support for public education. One way that they are doing that is by saying, look, the teachers who you entrust your children to, who are responsible for caring for your kids, they actually have an insidious agenda. And, you know, this is, and this is their framing, right? 
like it's not as if you know when teachers unions go on militant campaigns um go on go on strike um uh bargain for negotiate for good things not just for themselves but for the communities where they teach it's not as if when they do these things they're protecting you actually they're just advancing their own agenda and that includes turning your children against you right so there's the the kind of messaging that moms for liberty puts out there um frames teachers as the villains in this drama um uh, uh that you know in which they are supposed to be acting insidiously and against the interests of families and children. Um, and, you know, so, so for instance, Moms for Liberty, they frame themselves as defending, and you can't see my fingers, and I'm putting this in big scare quotes, they frame themselves as defending parental rights. And that is a swindle, right? That is a lie. They're not, def they're not defending anybody's right. They are attacking the ability of teachers to make their to teachers to set both working conditions for themselves and learning conditions for students which is to say the ability of teachers students and parents all to achieve like good public education together in which every young person has like an excellent place to learn and develop as a person, right? Um, and then also these people frame teachers as the reason why schools are bad, as opposed to say conservative administrations that defund, underfund and undermine um, the actual structures that make it possible for like young people to learn things. During your response, I, I, I have like 60 questions for you, and I came up with another Please. question, and that is, we, this, these words like grooming and indoctrination, what happened? I mean, you could apply that to uh, the education system in the 1950s or 1960s or 1970s by just saying they were being, the students were being groomed and indoctrinated into being, quote unquote, patriotic Americans. What happens to our understanding of education and the goals of education when they're labeled as grooming and indoctrination? What impact does that have on educators and the curricula that they're teaching? Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it frames, you know, everyone who cares about the ability of young people to thrive understands that education is in fact about shaping the ways that people understand the world to be like the, the, what they think the world is and how it changes the principles that they hold to be true and how they live them every so everybody everybody has um a sense about what um about about what what young people should be learning that's especially true for the for the for the right and for the the far right that's opposed to public education um, they too have an agenda. They really have an agenda for what um, they think young people should and should not be learning. And that is why, among other things, you know, in addition to attacking trans people in the classroom and, and the, uh, they are also doing things like changing the language of textbooks to remove references to the civil rights 
to the civil rights era and to remove a kind of popular understanding of how the struggle against racism was in some places won and fought, right? Um, so framing, you know, when they frame education as grooming, it delegitimizes things like teaching or like it delegitimizes any form of education or running a classroom in which somebody defends the ability of a young person to question and talk about their gender and sexuality. Um, it delegitimizes um, a, 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 a classroom in which a teacher explicitly helps young people of all races to understand what the history of segregation, Jim Crow, slavery, um, and effectively racial apartheid in the United States has been, right? It frames all of those things as um, this, uh, 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 let's say, um, extraneous agenda to um, corrupt and undo um, young people, to pull them apart from their families and position them against their families. Um, it... Uh, takes part in a kind of big, in a, in a large scale conspiracist framing of, you know, what teachers and let's say, as far as Moms for Liberty is concerned, like, you know, like liberals or like, you know, the Democrats or whatever um, are are doing um, and, and, and suggest that all of this is a kind of like external imposition um, on the family. Now, what these people want to do um, in say like you know the moms for liberty is is really like closely allied with the desantis administration in florida basically desantis has said this he's talked about them as his foot soldiers and so and when you so so you can start looking at like what is the desantis approach to public education it it like one of the things that desantis has done is um put into place a universal voucher program such that any parent can withdraw their student, their, their child from a public school and put them into a private school that is publicly subsidized. A private school with say, a, a an ideological Christian and conservative pedagogy um, that public taxpayers in Florida foot the bill for while public schools then don't receive that funding and are further underfunded um, at the same. So, 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 you know, like you can see like that is an agenda, right? That is an agenda for young people to learn particular ideas about how the world is and should be. Um, it's very narrow and it's very conservative. And that is like, you know, I mean, I'm not going to call it grooming, but I am going to call it like indoctrination. Um, it is it is an attempt to make it remake an entire generation of young people in a particular way. Which is incredibly frightening. And we also have to remember that these charter schools, these privatized schools, 
are profiting from this and they often make it so the educators have worse working conditions and have uh, lower wages so it doesn't attract as quality of educators as you would hope. Yesterday we were having this conversation with uh, philosopher Susan Neiman and she was talking about how uh, there's an issue with always just focusing on the worst of U.S. history. And one of the things that she was arguing is that that not only, you know, we should be talking about the history of slavery in this country, but when we only focus on the history of slavery during that era instead of the victories over slavery, then we're missing the bigger picture of what there's been bad history in the United States and there's been good history in the United States. There were Southern white abolitionists who fought for the end of slavery. So by ignoring the, I don't know what you'd call the evils of our past, indigenous genocide, uh, slavery, by doing, by ignoring those things, are we also ignoring the victories over the worst parts of our past? And is that the point of people like DeSantis? They don't want to just ignore our horrible past. They want to ignore the fact that we overcame it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that, you know, one I think that one um, of the most insidious parts of, you know, like the, 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 uh, when, when, when textbooks have information about the civil rights era removed or, or, or disguised, excuse me, or misrepresented, you know, I think that one of the most insidious, um, uh, um, let's say achievements of that project is that it robs people of the ability to understand how these fights were won. Um, because these are, you know, um, uh, like, as you say, not like, okay, you know, we live in a place that ha- that is 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 shaped by a massive and long-standing history of violence. And nonetheless, and this is, I think, like really important for us to take into account, like, as you say, um, um, that you no, know, like those structures no lo- longer actually impose on our lives. So how or, or like how was it possible for slavery to be undone? Um, and and you know, like that wasn't just um uh, 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 uh achieved through um the civil war it was also and more particularly achieved through what people like wb du bois you know argued was a general strike of the slaves themselves um reconstruction you know he talks about black reconstruction in the south and he talks about how um uh uh uh, uh black people and white abolitionists were working together to create um to create freedom in places that six months prior had been um uh, uh had been the sites of um uh enslavement um so you know that that is an example right and of course Re- reconstruction was you know like um uh, uh viciously like picked apart um um uh, but um, it's an important, like, you know, example of how people attempted to um, make freedom, of, of, of how a cross 
ra a multiracial and anti-racist coalition attempted to make freedom real. And similarly, you can think about, you know, the uh, successful and decades-long fight to end Jim Crow and to end, you know, legal apartheid, legal segregation, um, and how that those fights were ultimately achieved through very dedicated strategic organizing at the right time um, by a multiracial coalition of people working to make freedom real and to undo the racist destruction of human life. And, th and, and those are, which is to say, like, those are organizing victories. Like, this is kind of like what the organizing tradition is. It looks at, like, how people actually made a life worth living possible um, en masse and for many people um, uh, at once. And so, you know, when we think about, like, our situation now, I mean, I think a lot of people in the face of the war on workers, in the face of the retrenchment of all kinds of forms of like, um, uh, 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 you know, like the war on workers, the, the 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 rollback of Roe v. Wade. When people look at these really dire conditions, I think that there is, a, you know, an, an instinct that people do actually have to like despair because our situation is so dire. And the kind of organizing tradition that I come out of emphasizes that deeply disempowered people actually can turn what we have into what we need to get what we want. Like we can, we actually can develop our skills to change our conditions. And when we look at the, the you know, the right-wing lawfare and the attacks on trans people and how those are being coupled to attacks on educators and healthcare workers, um, a kind of organizing approach, uh, uh, an organizing appro approach asks, how do we um, use the power that we have to change these conditions and make sure that um, these opponents that we have do not win? And that's the question that's on my mind right now. Right. So the one of the things that uh, your article made me think about is how their agenda, you know, the public education is supposed to be protected through the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. It's supposed to be guaranteed. And granted, that is an amendment of the Constitution. But those who are on the right, conservatives, Republicans, they will say that they believe in the rule of law and that they believe in the U.S. Constitution. They also say that they uh, don't believe in give. They don't believe in the state. They're anti-government. They don't want to give too much power to the state. And they say that they are very supportive of free speech. Yet, here we have the Moms for Liberty and this attack on public education that would suggest they don't support what's in the Constitution. Again, granted, that is an amendment to the Constitution. They do. They believe that the state should have all of the power in determining what people are being taught, and they want to limit uh, freedom of speech. Is this agenda, uh, what does this agenda of the Republicans, conservatives, those on the right, reveal to you when it seems to contradict what they have been saying are the basic tenets of their belief for years? Totally. I mean, so, you know, if your question, which I think is a good one, is are these people misrepresenting themselves and are, are are they misrepresenting themselves and also 
are they um, incoherent, let's say, in their beliefs about um, in, the, in their beliefs about the state, in their beliefs about education, in their beliefs about free speech. Both of those things are true. Um, I think it's actually important, though, to pick apart, just kind of getting specific, to pick apart who the different pe the different people in this coalition are. And so that's why in the article I talk about this interview that Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire did with um, Daniel Denver from On the Dig um, back in the spring, where they very usefully um, distinguished when they they talk about an attack on public education, and they they talk about this as effectively a coalition between two different constituencies, and one is market fundamentalists, and one is Christian, and the other is Christian nationalists. And actually, this coalition is really tenuous, right? Because these people, and you can even think sort of within like market fundamentalists and people who are like so doing things like supporting charter schools, you know, that e even internal to that agenda, there are people with very different interests. So the Christian nationalists within this within this broad coalition to undermine public education, the Christian nationalists have a very particular agenda, which is an ideological agenda. Um, uh, uh, which is like, uh, you know, has to do with f forms of social conservatism. The market fundamentalists kind of don't care about that. Um, they have a strong belief. The market fundamentalists have a strong belief in what the state should and should not be doing, namely like this kind of like Milton Friedman line. Like they believe that the state should not actually fund public education through public schooling. They think that, you know, they, they're sort of defending the kind of school voucher idea, um, which which is, you know, that's actually like a very old idea in, in, in kind of like conservative economics. Right. Um, uh, and and so you know, like their like the agenda of the market fundamentalists is an economic one that passes through, as it were, their sense of what the state should and should not be doing. So they have so on the other hand, the Christian fundamentalists actually like they they have a, a pretty that that is like actually like a pretty different agenda. What's notable about this coalition is, as Berkshire and Schneider point out, it's actually very uneasy um, because these people like basically want different things. Now, an uneasy coalition can win. I'm not saying that these people won't be won't be victorious. They very well might be. Um, and that would be bad for all of us. Um, however, it is important, like note, like it is important to notice that there is like a major, a major fracture here, especially because, you know, as like as you can kind of like point out, well, they want really different things from the state. Um, like the Christian nationalists don't actually care about the kind of like libertarian state structure that the market fundamental the market fundamentalists want to put in place. Um, so you can you can see how this coalition could fall apart because it is so incoherent um and i do think that one thing that those of us who believe in um universal free public education for all people um right as one of the things that people should have and should have access to and that should be publicly guaranteed with our collective resources 
what like one of the things that we should be doing is trying to disaggregate the coalition that opposes us is trying to like find the ways to make these people actually work against each other and you mentioned about that article, and Dan's been on the show in the past. He's a really great guest on the show. You write how Christian nationalists seek to control the content of education by moving children out of public schools and into private religious institutions, suppressing anti-racist and trans and gay affirming curricula and affirming traditional values, quote unquote, in primary and secondary educations. Within their emergent coalition, the market fundamentalists contribute the money and policy depth and the Christian nationalists, the grassroots movement. How grassroots is the Christian grassroots movement if it is supported by the big money of market fundamentalism? Is Christian nationalism a front for market fundamentalism? Are Christian nationalists working with the money changers? I mean, so the the answer the answer is, you know, I mean, like, uh, um, the answer is both that there is there are like real grassroots activists on the far right. And I do think that this is important for us to like, to, 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 to think about. Um, it's not just, let's say an astroturfed movement. Um, it is, however, um, uh, there, uh, uh, it's not just an astroturf movement because there are, um, a number of like there are people who really are committed to this vision and committed to executing it and who will go and do things like protest in front of, you know, protest in front of a hospital that has like a trans clinic. Right. That's like the, the shit that Matt Walsh has been doing. Right. Um, there are real people who will, you know, there are the people who will run the kind of Moms for Liberty chapters. There are like, you know, 240 chapters of this organization, maybe more than that, um, nationwide. Um, however, you know, it, it is also the case that for this, this, uh, you know, like this grassroots movement is getting a lot of money. Um, it's getting money from, uh, and you know, other people have, have really followed the money here. Um, Maurice Cunningham, um, has done a really good job and a lot of pe other people have like dug into it. Um, but they're getting money from, the 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 organizations that make up the Council of National Policy, which is this you know like right wing umbrella organization that um, um, has um, directed a lot of the um, uh, let's say the right wing of the rights agenda um, since the eighties, um, and so this money is like pouring into Moms for Liberty, um, which is one reason why you know like the group started in like early twenty twenty two. Uh, sorry, early 2021, and um, like almost immediately got like um, Rush Limbaugh show coverage, Breitbart coverage, um, became a kind of right wing me media darling. Um, so you can see, like, oh, this was yes, there are real people who are like moved by this vision, but it is also absolutely organizing from above. Um, you know, like there are lots of people with deep pockets and very intentional political agendas who decided this is the organization and like these are the people who we need to like set up with resources and put in front of put in front of cameras, knowing that we are on a particular like political calendar. Um, yeah. So uh, is the gay trans teachers union alliance conspiracy theory the far right 
simply connecting two things they already opposed and turning them into a conspiracy theory, like taking refrigerator magnets with random things the far right opposed and then linking the two together. Is that what the strategy is? And if that is the strategy, is it, suc- is it successful and why? Yeah, I mean, you can see like, okay, so, so you know, let's answer that in, in, two, way, in two ways, right? Why, it, one question is, why attack educators and healthcare workers so vigorously right that's one question why is that the why is that the right strategy and the second question is why go after trans and queer people now and you know and 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 then you can kind of put that together and when you look at what like say christopher rufo um who you know is the the, like the right-wing strategist who came up who basically like astroturfed and came up with and like manufactured the anti-critical race theory panic um in you could see him start to pivot in 2022 to start talking about grooming and trans people and gay people and and teachers as the the kind of the villains responsible for for grooming kids you could see him start to do that um so and the question is like is 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 like why right um uh so answer like let's answer that let's let's break that down right why attack educators and healthcare workers well the reasoning is i mean you know in a way like the right these these strategists on the right are simply reading the news um educators and healthcare workers are you know militant sectors of the working class that when they have been able to organize have um changed the power structures have changed not just they've not just like won great contracts for their members they have changed the power structures of the places where they live and work so a really great example of this maybe the best example is how you know the Chicago Teachers Union, a militant, democratic, um, uh, 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 like let's say um, uh, a union that understands itself to be part of a liberation tradition, right? That for the past decade um, has won very effective strikes and has really changed things in Chicago. They backed Brandon Johnson for his run for mayor. And, you know, Brandon Johnson is, you know, like maybe the furthest left official to hold exec- major executive office in the U.S. And he has this broad, powerful coalition behind him that's doing things like taxing the rich to fund um, uh, good affordable housing and jobs guarantees for young people you know um he has this big powerful agenda that um there's majority support behind in chicago um that's really cool and that and the, you know the teachers union that like they were the like like brandon johnson came out of the teachers union and they were the organization that powered him through among many others that powered him through to victory so you know like when the right looks at examples like this what they are seeing is the power of working people in strategic sectors to change to to change power relations for um poor and working people 
um, uh, for people of color, uh, um, for for social minorities um, um, in, in, in all kinds of ways. And so they're being very strategic when they try to incapacitate teachers unions and, and, and other unions for and other centers of, of working class power. Okay. Why attack why attack teachers and teachers unions through trans people? I mean, I think that, you know, people like Matt Walsh and Christopher Rufo um, uh, and all these other Daily Wire um, goons, um, I think that why, like, like, in a way, they are making a bet like they did with the attack on CRT, that if they set off a particular moral panic in a period when people are very prone to experiencing these kind of waves of paranoia and conspiracism and panic, their sense is that they can use that to create a powerful political coalition, create one coalition and prevent another from coming into being. You know, when you look at where educators and healthcare workers, for instance, have, have really made great strides, you can see that, they, they, you know, these people have organize not just themselves and their other worker, their co-workers, but they've organized the whole communities in the places where they work. So in the Red for Ed strike waves in, in West Virginia and in LA um, uh, and in Ontario, actually, this past year, um, educators organized parents and community members to be in support of their strikes. And that was very effective because when management tried to bring down the hammer, um, parents and community members stood up in support of the teachers. So that's a that's a political coalition. That's a majority political coalition, right? The way the, the people like Christopher Rufo are thinking, well, what we need to do is convince parents that their enemy is the person teaching their child, right? And that teacher has an insidious agenda that teacher is going to scare quotes, groom their child by doing things like asking their kid their pronouns or, or introducing kids to the idea that you can change your gender or, you know, like um, introducing kids to the history of the civil rights movement, right? Introducing kids to the, the history of slavery, history of racism, right? Um, that's all of that for these people falls under the category of grooming. Once you have convinced parents that their enemy is teachers rather than, say, conservative administrations that are defunding public schools, then it becomes very easy to pull those parents into a political coalition that will do all kinds of other things, um, including achieve a conservative agenda um, uh, uh, in dismantling public education, um, and, and, you know, all of these other things that um, uh, the far right has been, let's say, successful at in particular places. So that's the calculus, right? The calculus is about, you know, they are making a bet. Whether or not it will work, well, I guess we'll see. But they are make these people are making a guess and uh, uh, that by a by turning trans people into this massive continual media punching bag, they can um, break up a potent political coalition and remake another one, one that they can use to power themselves and their agenda to victory.
Um, and that is precisely what we need to undo. We are speaking with Kay Gabriel. She is a writer and organizer based in New York who recently posted the N Plus One article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble popular support for public education. So years and years ago, we had uh, Charles Manson's prosecutor on the show a couple of times, Vincent Bugliosi. I asked him, you know, how can you tell a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory? What is you know, at the root cause of a conspiracy theory. And he said it was uh, guessing, taking motivations, perceived motivations, and believing that those are fact. So, and I've always thought that's a great uh, definition of what a conspiracy theory is. You write, if the conspiracism of the far right fails to align with fact, it nonetheless demonstrates some of the logic driving the current anti-trans moral panic, its movement warriors, and its legislative wing. So, Kay, what happens to democracy when conspiracy theories not only inform political beliefs, but also become successful political strategies? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, like under it undermines the ability. The the short answer to your question is um, uh, when this state of affairs happens, it undermines the ability of most people to have a life worth living. Um, it turns people basically poor and dispossessed people into the foot soldiers of a movement that will actually not not help them um and you know one of the things that i say in the piece in in, in the essay is you know like you look at the past 10 years and you see these waves of conspiracist thinking most of it is being you know the right Ha it, most of it's happening on the right but you can see all kinds of people falling into it i mean i remember i was actually i was a teacher i was i was teaching um uh i was teaching um uh, uh first years in a university program and i was asking my students you know what they thought about covid vaccines this was in 2021 and they were like we don't know about that we're not so sure it seems like the government wants us to do something and i was like well you guys got vaccinated why and they were like well the, the school made us and, and, and these were like working class black students from Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, not not like far, not, not like the people you would think of as being like in line with like right wing conspiracies. Now, I think that one, one thing that's like really important right now to know, and this is something I say in the piece is like, basically, like the world that we live in is really ripe for this kind of conspiracist thinking because people do actually experience such chaos and crisis in their lives without without any clear strategy or narrative that actually tells them why their lives are hard and bad, right? Um, and so this is something that I also say, you know, a plan to win that could actually cut through this bullshit would, excuse my language, um, uh, would, um, uh, uh, that could cut through this nonsense would address people's sense of, um, would address people's real sense of, of their own disempowerment in the face of like, you know, climate crisis, um, COVID, um, 
uh, uh, economic crisis, inflation, all of these things that make think that make their lives really hard to live, and can say, "Look, your life is hard to live because there are there is a small class of very wealthy people who are trying to." keep society in their control, but actually you can live in a different way and here's how, right? And giving people that real sense of who, like there are real people who are getting in the way of a, like a good life. And it's just like, it's the wealthy and powerful um, uh, who have particular agendas for society. That is true. And it's just like directing people. I mean, you know, it's kind of like when Bernie like talked about billionaires over and over again, and people responded to that. He wasn't wrong, right? Um, people like he gave people a sense of a real and accurate and also resonant sense of why of like the pe of like the, the 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 people who are actually getting in the way of their ability to have a good life. And that is, I think, what we need to do when you know we as organizers talk to people and attempt to like build a really powerful big majority coalition that can fight for. Um, equality and justice for all people. Um, uh, we need to address the real and deep sense of disempowerment that most people have, and give them the action, and give and help them lay the blame where it really belongs, and and give them a plan to win. But then you are offering a critique of capitalism, and you write that while attacks on K through twelve teachers are only one front in the right wing anti trans project. They've established a template for other legislation, which has often followed a similar pattern of misdirecting moral outrage away from material problems. Are Americans yeah. more supportive of fear and hatred towards gay and trans people and people of color than they are receptive to any discussion relating to our material problems? Is hate more popular than any criticism of capitalism or racism, for that matter. Would we rather hate than address our real problems? I mean, I, I think my answer to that, I mean, I guess I'm not I'm not a, somebody who has like a lot of like, you know, polling and numbers pulled up in front of me. Although my <laughs> my, my you know, my my experience from organizing is that the answer to that question is no. Um, the like are people more motivated by hate than the art by the need to address, you know, than the need to address their own material problems and their neighbors. My my deep sense of that is actually is actually no. I think I think that like credible organizing helps people to understand who is responsible for their lives being hard and bad. And that, that is what organizing does. And that is what like, like structures like a union are actually like make pot make possible, but not, not just a union, but, but like a structure, but a union is a good example. You know, a, like a, honestly, like faith groups are another good example. Like, like, like faith groups are actually um, like faith groups, churches, congregations um, are places where people gather meaning about their lives and when those spaces are multiracial and anti-racist, it helps people to under to come to a different sense and understanding of the world. When those places are affirmatively uh, like pro-trans, that helps people to come to a different understanding of the world. And so, and and especially when you know, like 
I mean, like a, a really good, really classic example is like, you know, um, a lot of working class people, when you when you pull them, they have like sometimes they can have really um, uh, 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 like um, hostile positions about immigration because they see they receive so much propaganda about immigrants standing in the way of uh, of them getting jobs and them getting good services and them getting good you know public funding and things like this and when you have like organizations that can push a different sense and go like oh like you know like the, the guy is standing outside the home depot like looking for a, a you know a, like the, a job to like a sessional job today like those aren't the people who are getting in the way of 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 uh you having a job um it's like there is an entirely different class of people who are secure and wealthy and powerful and who have remade the world in their image those are the people who are responsible and we all can work together to make sure that we all can have like a, like a, a a a life worth living like that that is a kind of organizing focus that can help people um uh put their power together to um uh, uh, uh actually attack the real source of their own exploitation um and and i do believe that's possible do you think that this stronger labor movement is indicative of that rising uh, class awareness because for those who do feel powerless they often think that, you know, any consideration of their material conditions, any consideration of a critique of capitalism, they might see that as anti-American, even unpatriotic. How much of a challenge is that collective change in perception that we need for people to realize it's not the person of color, it's not the person who's anti or who is trans or who is gay. But it is your material conditions. Your issue is the shortcomings of the market. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think about how, you know, like it's a great question because, of course, we are also living in a period of like real labor militancy um, that, you know, um, uh, uh, you, that you know we can see from big strike wins this year, um, you know, Teamsters, UAW, um, uh, um, uh, you know, um, uh, WGA. Um, and one thing that I think is notable is that workers, um, uh, workers of all races in all different sectors are seeing the wins that the labor movement is having and are feeling inspired by that and to think they can demand more for themselves um and their co-workers and their communities and so it is like raising expectations in a very powerful way i mean and i also think about you know like how like sean fain you know like the uw president he had that, that like you know that like what was it like the eat the rich shirt that he was wearing um that had like you know it was like really funny to see that slogan right like but clearly like his workers you know, we're like responding to it. And he was able like not he he and UAW were able to win a really amazing contract that, of course, the workers are voting on now. Um, And he did it while, let's say, dialing up 
class antagonism and getting people to understand it. it's your bosses that are getting in the way of your life. And, and that, you know, it's, and, 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 we, and, and so I, I do think that there is like, you know, um, a real basis for people, for people, poor and working people to understand how capitalism, how class society, how a class of bosses and owners is the real, is the real enemy here. So you write how Matt Walsh, the person you were mentioning earlier, a columnist for the Daily Wire and the most public face of the anti-trans movement's media arm, has repeatedly associated trans identity in children with sexual violence from adults and openly called medical professionals who aid youth transition child abusers. So is the argument that being trans is the outcome of child sex abuse by adults is because if that's the case, that would mean that every person who is trans was a victim of child sex abuse. Is there any evidence to suggest this kind of victimhood being uh, placed upon trans kids, uh, the kind of shame that the Moms for Liberty want to see educators do to kids who are claiming to be trans, uh, the uh, grooming that they say is happening with kids that is turning them into being trans? Are Do any of those things actually line up with reality can you indoctrinate a kid to not be trans can you shame a kid into not being trans can you tell a kid you're just a victim of child sex abuse and that's the reason that you're trans can trans can any of those things actually lead to someone questioning their gender identity of being trans yeah so the answer uh, to your question is 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 no um and very very vigorously no there is no evidence that being trans is the result of sexual abuse um and what's more actually if we're talking about like the prop like if we're talking about humanitarian conditions for children um you know the kinds of conversion therapy that matt walsh and the rest of the anti-trans camp are recommending taking kids who say that they are trans and bullying them and punishing them until they stop saying it, that kind of conversion therapy is considered torture. It's considered torture. Um, it has it massively increases suicide rates for young people, which is one reason, another reason why Moms for Liberty are not in fact defending, you know, say they're not defending parental rights. They're certainly not defending the rights of children. The people who actually have the well-being of young people at heart here are the people who believe that that, that kids who say they're trans should be listened to, supported, and protected. Right. That is a massive human rights concern that um, the anti-trans camp is um, vigorously and violently suppressing. And 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 it is um, and it is brutal. And it does mean that people will die. Young people will die. Um, they will die because they will they will hurt themselves and they will die at the hands of their peers who feel that they have um, uh, let's say the right to bully um, uh, uh, and punish and torment um, young trans and queer people or, or trans and queer people of any age. Uh, uh, um, um, uh, so, so you know, like, is there every any evidence for these for Matt Walsh's claims? Absolutely not. 
not only that, he is supporting the torture of young people. One last question for you, Kay. We've been speaking with Kay Gabriel. She is a writer and organizer based in New York who recently posted the N Plus One article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble popular support for public education. One last question for you, Kay. And as we do for all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell. That's because it's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Why are trans or gay people such a threat to the far right? Why does the far right fear gay and trans people so much? And if the far right is afraid of gay and trans people, how can the left exploit that fear? Totally. Um, so my my friend uh, Max Fox actually did have a really good answer to this question. Um, uh, and, and I'm, I'm just, I am going to like, I am going to, um, kind of trade on, 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 on sort of his sense here, which is like, you know, like the, the, the far right is not wrong that when, you know, like when young people, um, uh, um, are able to determine paths forward for themselves to live the lives that they want, it does actually um, uh, diminish the power that um, parents and family units unilaterally have to set trajectories for the lives of of their kids. That is that is true. It's not a bad thing. It's just it's just true, um, right? Um, uh, which is to say, there is actually a kind of like a tension between. Um, like, um, let's say unilateral parental control over what a family is and its ability to cohere meaning and, um, and the ability of, um, young people, um, to set agendas for themselves, including how they are under, including how they themselves and everyone around, around them understands them. Right. Um, you know, so, so, so like that, that's, that's the tension, um, you know, like, do, are we, are gay and trans people actually a threat to, um, let's say to like the ability of, of families to thrive and be happy? No, absolutely not. Right. That, that's not true. Are we a threat to the far right? Well, uh, only insofar as we threaten, let's say like, the hegemony that a very narrow set of values has over like how life should be lived. And in that sense, sure, I guess we're a threat. Like we do actually like push the, we do actually make it possible for life to be lived otherwise. And that's a great thing. Um, and in terms of the actual power that we hold, you know, I mean, I say this in the piece, I'll just say it again. If the far right believes that teachers unions and trans people are kind of like this scary powerful coalition then we should work to make that coalition real and so you know like educators healthcare workers people in all kinds in all kinds of jobs should actually make it of the kind of the popular position in their unions um, the popular consensus position in their unions to think like one of the things that these workers are doing is protecting the ability of people to transition with dignity. That is actually true. Um, teachers do do that. Nurses do that. Um, that's actually really important. 
impact. And so, so you know, if you're a teacher or a healthcare worker, you should make that possible for, for the young people around you. Actually, for all people around you. Yeah. It's just a reminder to me that uh, so often the right uh, co-opts ideas from the left and the left so rarely does the same thing back to the right. Yeah, totally. Well, and then also, you know, like for 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 let's say for trans for trans activists who believe in like you know trans liberation and who believe in like that we should all have the like these things guaranteed to us by like collective public resources, the ability to transition with dignity, right? We should also understand that teachers unions and and other unions are our best defense against the right. Like, and so we should really commit ourselves to organizing to organizing together with workers to organizing together with working class people um for a really powerful militant democratic labor movement understanding that this will be a bulwark against right-wing lawfare and attacks on the ability of trans people to live with dignity Kay, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. And the writing at N Plus One is absolutely fantastic. With Andrea Abikaram, uh, Kay co-edited We Want It All, an anthology of radical trans poetics. She's also the author of the uh, poetry collections A Queen in Bucks County and Kissing Other People or the House of Fame, all from Nightboat Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. We're going to do everything we can to have you back on in the future. Really, really enjoyed this conversation, and your writing is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Chuck. Have a good day. Take care. This is Hell, where we make learning about evil fun. If our conversation with Kay Gabriel on the true goal of Moms for Liberty, as well as the anti-trans and anti-gay movement being to end public education and make it a state-run propaganda project, even more than it is already, and one that indoctrinates your kids into Christian ideology and Christian nationalism. Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like that of Kay Gabriel that you won't hear anywhere else, and we give that new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including 10 years of shows right now that you can go to thisishell.com and listen to any and all of them. And we do all of that without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so not profit, non-profit, we can't be a not-for-profit. So please show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep This Is Hell online and and on air and assist in our efforts to make every show we've ever done available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? And uh, It's a longie, but it's a goodie. Yeah. Uh, we got some responses from the hellhole. Okay. And some of the hellhole responses from Jeffrey. One is that I am successfully staying beautiful. Oh, there you go. And my man Nick over here has, I like this one here, the dead drummers of the British invasion, Keith Moon, Charlie Watts, and Ringo Starr. <laughs> I don't know about the dead part of Ringo, but... That's a good point. I didn't even think about yeah, that. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, in uh, the quality of the music he's doing? I don't know. I'm not too sure what that... Uh, and by the way, that new Beatles video is really creepy. Don't watch okay. it. And also, Essel wrote that maybe I already have enough houseplants. 
That's all right. that always does a great job. I like that. <laughs> Any more? Um, there's a couple of Patreon answers. All right. And the first one here is from Tainan, and uh, they wrote, the $500, the $500 bill I just received for an ambulance ride that didn't happen, I called 911 during a health, care, health scare, but opted out of going to the hospital, but they still charged me for double, for for double, for trouble. Wow, Sorry. wow! That I, I would never ever call an ambulance here in the states because it is so freaking expensive. Yeah. And uh, ride-sharing companies are now filling in the gap there, which is really disturbing. Because if you've ever been in a ride-share car, yes. you don't know what the hell's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Any more? And or oh, the last, oh, the last one would be uh, that we can have things. Do you remember who that's from? I don't know if I put that. Oh, that was from Keith. Oh, Keith. (laughs) He can't have things. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, how we will be announcing after Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Uh, Again, Chris, what's Jeff up to during this week's moment of truth? Uh, Jeff Jeff suspects the COVID lockdown broke humanity's brains. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast with streams live and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Uh, this week on Patreon, the New York Times ran a front page story. One of your mics is hot over there, by the way. Uh, this week on Patreon, the New York Times ran a front page story uh, this week about young people posting on Tic Tac. Tic Tac. TikTok about how the economy is making them so depressed that it could have a huge impact on whether President Biden will be reelected or not. No, the New York Times story is not about the mental well-being of young people or what is making them so depressed about the economy. It's about the impact on the presidential freaking election. It's one of the cruelest, most inhumane studies of young people that you will read well until the next cruel, inhumane report about young people in the New York Times is somehow morphed into a discussion about presidential electoral politics. Also on Patreon, we are playing a 2002 interview with Daryl Cherney, who, along with fellow Earth First member Judy Bari, were injured in a 1990 car bomb explosion. Daryl and the late Ms. Bari, who died of unrelated causes, were exonerated of any wrongdoing of which they were accused. However, six of the seven FBI and Oakland police uh, involved were found to have violated the activists' First and Fourth Amendment rights by arresting the activists, conducting searches of their homes, and carrying out a smear campaign in the press by calling Earth First a terrorist organization, calling the activists bombers, in the aftermath of the explosion. And still, we hadn't adopted the term yet uh, copaganda, which is very much the case of why that happened. So, it's all kind of related to the guests that we have confirmed for next week, which we'll be telling you about after Jeff Dorchin. But the only way you can hear me tear the Times a new one in a conversation on law enforcement's hate for tree huggers is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You also get a special secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our stuff. Uh, you can ask a question from hell of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host that I have not heard or read before the Patreon podcast. And uh, it's a great way to stay on top of everything here on This Is Hell that's going on be- behind the scenes. 
once again you can do all that by getting to uh, by subscribing to patreon.com slash this is hell you also get first crack at every week's question from hell coming up Jeff with the moment of truth the rest of your answers I think that's all of them though to this week's question from hell and we will be announcing this week's winner we're also telling you what's happening on next week's show you are listening listening to God's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell I know you have Hefe on the line one two you know what to do The Broken Brain, Part 1, Perpetual Attack of the Pusker Stankles. How many ways has the human brain been broken since the COVID lockdown? And how many places has our fragile think bone been fractured? When exactly was the COVID lockdown? What did it actually lock down? What did we learn? What did we decide to deny learning? How did that process of vehement, violent, obnoxious, maladaptive denial sever the connection between our already impoverished model of reality and the new model, which, despite its far closer approximation to whatever reality might exist outside our minds, we adamantly refused to accept? What even happened? As far as I can recall, what happened was this. A virus spread throughout the world via mobile human incubators. We carried it all over the world, traveling more swiftly between more locations than any virus spreaders in history ever had. We went by air, sea, and land, hurrying to infect our loved ones in every nook, cranny, divot, and vestibule of the roughly spherical world a world which remains demonstrably roughly spherical despite the myriad broken human brains who persist in trying to flatten it. And where did it come from, this virus? As near as scientists, and here I should differentiate between scientists concerned about how the ailment might affect people of different ages with various predispositions to fall ill, as opposed to the froth-mouthed pseudo-medical deformities arrogating to downplay the seriousness of a virus they had extremely limited knowledge about, for what purpose we can only guess, to which guesses we shall return. As nearly as actual, reasonable, caring, civic-minded, decent scientists and doctors could tell, the virus jumped from some species of exotic food animal to human hosts somewhere in China. But before we can attempt to evaluate the many ways humanity's brains have been short-circuited by the COVID lockdown, it's important here to divide public individuals into two, to divide public individuals into two reasonably reasonable good faith citizen operators on the one hand and ectopically gestated howling rabid abominations on the other of course many fell into a hybrid category of generally caring but at times caving to pressure from the abomination camp no one is ever just one thing but some completely abdicated their civic humanity to preen for, parade in, and profit from the culture of abomination. 
when you picture the members of the abomination camp, such crotch lice as Jordan Peterson, Drew Pinsky, Trump, Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson, the entire nation of Sweden, the entire Fox News Channel, and the relatively hairless primate conditioned to argue the conscience the contrary to any and all educated understandings of reality, that piss-drinking, anthropodal afterbirth, Joe Rogan. I want you to envision in your mind's eye, Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby, during the scenes when all her friends are worried about her because she's pregnant, yet in horrible pain and losing weight, her eye sockets hollow and charcoal gray. And then I want you to imagine the cranium of that character swollen to twice its normal size with abominable amniotic fluid and that cranium hairless and translucent so that visible within are silhouetted hairless vermin writhing, some running on hamster wheels, others flipping pizzas, others clawing to escape their captivity in that cranial prison laboratory, still others giving birth to premature grub-like fetal larvae, biting off their heads and sucking down the proto-spinal fluid within. I want you to picture these abominations exactly the way they would look if their inner corruption were an overt, outwardly evident deformity of the soul. In fact, abomination is too polite a label for these willfully premature moral and intellectual stillbirths. These fallopian carbuncles, these anal cankers, these ambulatory pus sacs, puskerstankles, these skittering, chittering puskerstankles are a contemporaneous human species with ours, like the Denisovans and Neanderthals once were, but unlike them, Homo puskerstankulus might outlive the arrogantly self-named Homo sapiens or absorb them like a fetus devouring its twin in the womb. So, as the lockdown was implemented, there were the humans and the puskerstankles already engaged in rhetorical and often physical battle against one another's goals. Because of course, there were Pusker Stankles before the lockdown. Some had been Pusker Stankles from birth, growing exponentially in vocal volume and obnoxiousness once the election of Trump had ushered in the great unmasking, the great unmasking of Pusker Stankularity. We'd gone through decades, even centuries, we humans, trying to nurture civic norms, albeit always facing resistance, not always achieving success. But little did we know just how much resentment the Pusker Stankular minority had been building up at every step to the extent that every plot point in civilization that would have violated the show Bible of The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet sitcom, 1952 to 1966, caused a surge of acid reflux in the Pusker stankular body politic. They were like Madame Defarge, having apparently been keeping a record of every offense against the Pusker Stankle community from the defeat of chattel slavery through Roosevelt's New Deal on up to the legalization of same sex marriage and beyond to the uprising of Black Lives Matter against arbitrary extrajudicial execution of black people onto trans liberation and the current fitful reawakening of unionism. With every anti-left, anti-communal, anti-progressive reflex of spite they felt, they made another knot in their cenobitic digestive tract. 
that knotted length of intestinal tissue is a fetish upon which all their seething disgust against the compassionate communal spirit is writ. They tell those knots many times a day, like human gut rosaries. <sighs> As I said before, we can analyze the many... <clears throat> As I said before, before we can analyze the many self-inflicted wounds the human brain has suffered since the violently aborted COVID lockdown commenced on the Ides of March 2020, we had first to distinguish between the injured parties, the humans, and their antagonists, the Pusker Stankles. Now that we have done so, we can move on to part two, what injuries did the antagonists wreak upon the brains of humanity? What did we inflict upon our own brains? And what injuries were collaborative efforts whereby we colluded with our antagonists against ourselves? All that and more, yeah, or maybe less, on the next Moment of Truth. Good day. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. Live for Lance Stone from the Potawatomi people. <laughs> uh, this is hell. And uh, last week, if you tuned into the Patreon podcast, I actually corrected uh, that tagline. But Jeff, while you co commented on Facebook that you thought our earlier interview this week with Susan Neiman on Germany and its national identity, that you thought that conversation was excellent, I sent to you the email. That's not what listener Connor B. thinks. Connor writes, first- Wait, did you send it to me? I think so. Didn't you see it? Uh I don't know. I All haven't right, well, seen it. Well, listen to I'm it. I'm not yet. very good at checking my email. And me neither. Uh, first time, long time, Connor writes, I've been in and out of the recent run of guests since the Zionist ethnic cleansing of Gaza began and <laughs> desperate for English language sources on the repression of pro-Palestinian activism. And Connor, you should listen to our interviews with, I don't know, Ariel Angel, Sophia Goodfriend, Sari Makdizi, all that have happened in the last couple of weeks when you get a chance. Connor continues, because of that desperation, I was deeply disappointed to hear the interview with Susan Neiman today. Having a guest who asserts Israel isn't a settler colonial state, that she doesn't support BDS during a genocide by that very settler colonial state, is obscene. Her major insight that the German state cracks down on everything except complete lip service to the Zionist entity could have been tackled by any number of Palestinian voices within Germany in English. Off, off the top of my head, Ali Abumina, Abunima is one. So Ali has been on the show, I don't know, like 10 times over the years. Also, we wanted the perspective from a German who happens to be Jewish on Germany's national identity and the threats to free speech and expression that has caused. This is something that many Americans are fearful of and something we discussed with the Palestinian Sari Makdizi only two weeks ago. So it's kind of a follow-up on that discussion. And Connor says, what's worse was you letting those assertions go, go unchallenged. This is how brings on mostly crunchy left-type guests, which doesn't necessitate adversarial lines of questioning. Because you're not listening. Fine, but Neiman gave you 15 feet of rope to hang her with, and you kept right on with the chumminess. If you're going to have a limousine liberal on, the least you can do is expose the contradictions of their position. Now, I agree, but she wasn't on to talk about BDS, although she did support it being debated in Germany, which it is not. It is illegal to have that debate. In fact, as her Einstein Foundation, or Einstein Institute, I can't remember, is state-funded by Germany, during our conversation, she crossed that German red line 
of calling Israel an apartheid state, which could threaten the funding for her organization. However, the question from hell, I agree, should have been, why do you oppose BEDS and how is Israel not a colonial state? Connor concludes, likewise to Neiman's limp, limpid, most Israel Israelis are alarmed at their government's rightward shift. BS, they love right-wing Likudnik governments. They just hate Netanyahu. 80% of Israelis want more firepower loosed on Gaza. That's not dismay at rightward shift. It's discomfort with the genocide. Didn't swing their way for once. Letting those kinds of bromides walk right on by adds the pile of Palestinian bodies. So, oh, so you're, uh, you're complicit in killing Palestinians. Yes. Is what this reactionary left is. See, you know, the reactionary left can basically suck it. It's like there are there are a multiplicity of opinions that are still left. Sorry, not everyone on the left wants to wipe Israel off the map, which I assume you want to do uh, by your attitude. Anyway, um, people live there now. I mean, granted, people lived there when when Zionist settlers got there, and it was not cool that they were moving people and killing people and chasing people to uh, 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 you know whatever to clear the land for themselves but they're there now and it's not any less of a crime to start killing them or what I mean I don't know what this person wants well by role I think what they want is just like no Palestinians are right Israelis are wrong. They're just all bad. And the fact that they all support the Likud, the, the Likud government is baloney. Um, now, granted, Likud wins a lot. Uh, but by a plurality. And they do hate Netanyahu. They do hate Netanyahu. And, and yes, the 80% of Israelis want more firepower loosed on Gaza. Yeah, that's awful. I don't like that. I think that's awful. That doesn't mean they support Likud when they're voting. I mean, Netanyahu keeps getting voted in. But there are plenty of Israelis who are in favor of peace. Do you want to wipe them all out? You think that's a good idea? Do you think Hamas's action was productive, killing uh, Israeli settlers or Israeli um, kibbutzniks who helped? Palestinians get health care in an apartheid state so that they could go from Palestine where there was less uh, available health care. They took them to Israeli hospitals so they could get health care. But, you know, Hamas killing them uh, is good somehow. Should she have just said that was really great or something like what? What? What crossed the line? That she didn't, that she doesn't support BDS. Well, you know, there's a whole economy that employs Palestinian citizens of Israel. All right. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna put all those people out of jobs. Right. This is the uh, discussion we had earlier this year about how economic sanctions in general can be worse than war in the long term when it comes to the yes. well-being of the people that they're targeting. Now, I think that's something that uh, Connor doesn't understand here is that my role is not to defend the statements right. made by past guests while he's absolutely right that I should have followed up on both the well, idea she of- did say to be fair she said 
That's not a question from hell. She said it twice. I know, I know. I don't even know what you asked her. She was like, that's not a question from hell. And I thought to myself while I was driving in my car listening, I said, yeah, that's uh, for her. That's a question from heaven. Yeah, uh, trying to separate the idea of Jew- Jewish uh, universalism from mm-hmm. Israeli nationalism. And I had no idea that that was, I should have thought about this a little bit, but I had no idea that that was a civil war within Judaism. But, you know, my role isn't to you know defend people who, uh, whatever statements they make on the show. I thought uh, the far more important question to ask when it came to the question from hell was that contradiction between Israeli nationalism and Jewish universalism. And finally, uh, nowhere in her writing had in the writing that I had read before the show, had she said she was anti-BDS, only that she supported the debate, which is not allowed in Germany and is threatening to not be allowed here in the States. As for settler colonialism, well, she mentioned a couple of places that are specific to German settler colonialism, which in Namibia and Ghana, which are very different from what has taken place historically with uh, Zionism and uh, Israel. So I'm looking forward to Sebastian Voper's Past Inside the Present when he will be going into that phrase, settler colonialism, in depth at the beginning of next week's show. I really appreciate that. And finally... Oh, he's not doing it this week? Uh, nope, next week. And as far as your labeling of us as liberals, you should go back and listen to our conversation from September with Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, our 2016 talk with Patrick Deneen, uh, and his much-discussed assault on liberalism called Why Liberalism Failed, as well as our 2016 talk with Steve Fraser on his book that's actually called Limousine liberal so connor judging 27 plus years on air on one interview is a generalization that is inaccurate as all generalizations are but i do appreciate your insight and i also believe that you are correct that should have been my question from hell except for the answer would have been 15 minutes long i don't know just wanted to get that off you know in his defense yes if he is uh yeah, I don't know. I don't have a defense for him. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I, obviously, his impulse comes from a, a, a good place. Yes, I think heart. so. He doesn't want to wipe people out. Right. He wants peace. The thing is, I think, I, I think my problem with the, not necessarily the settler colonial label, but I think what Susan said about uh, putting Palestinians in the global south and Israelis in the global north when they are inhabiting the same land um, is uh, it does show a kind of myopic view of what geopolitics is and I think it's, it's superimposing trying to superimpose the indigenous label onto Palestinians and the settler colonial label on Zionists is uh is nice and simple for the leftists who don't want to think too com- complexly about what's going on. And maybe a lot of leftists think, well, complexity is not something the Israeli government deserves. But the situation is complex. There are plenty of Jews from the global south in Israel. And, you know, the Shas party, the, the, it's arguable that the, uh, they call them Sephardic Jews and Jews from Ethiopia and Jews from Arab countries are from the global south. Yeah. 
and they've been they've been screwed with on that score in their own countries. I mean, it, it it's a I think there's a lot of work trying to be done to to make it very simple so that people can walk around waving a flag who just only yesterday said, "Yes, this is unjust." There's a lot of injustice all over the Muslim world in their own countries um and in sudan and yemen and it's just like uh the i there is a there is an argument to be made by jews and i'm not making this argument <laughs> that uh the hyper focus on israel is it does have something to do with uh left anti-semitism now i i don't believe that <laughs> although i do believe in left anti-semitism knee-jerk left anti-semitism just because i've experienced it and uh, um but you know it is a little uh it is it is a little bit of a double standard to judge israel by which is which is ostensibly a democracy although it doesn't behave like one at all at all <laughs> but uh and and other arab countries were people are constantly bombarded by their governments and you know it's like where where are the how did how did the world unite behind this particular cause now i i understand people were united against the south african government too um although i don't remember marches like this size in every corner of the world but it's you know it's let's face it to a lot of Jews they're going to look at that and say hey it's no coincidence it's no coincidence the whole world's ganging up on us and that gives a bunch of people who I think should know better a lot of ammunition to say well of course you know we've been picked on by every generation there has risen people who want to exterminate us and this is just that again obviously it's not that again I don't think it is right but it, but it's something that you know, you got to be able to ask yourself tough questions so you can figure out exactly, so you can learn, so you can move forward. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Jeffy. I also, I don't, I don't understand this. They hate Netanyahu. They, that, that's dismay. That's not dismay. There is dismay at a right weird drift in Israel. And I know that there is. And there are a lot of people who've been beaten up by police trying to keep. Uh, Palestinians in their homes in East Jerusalem. You know, they were, I don't remember, you know, if you remember this last year, they were trying to kick out a whole bunch of uh, Palestinians, and they did. Uh, but there were Israeli peace marchers who were beaten by Israeli police marching against that. And if you want to keep those people fighting for the right side, just try not to alienate them and try to think like maybe you live in that extremely difficult situation of wanting peace but being on someone else's land especially here in the united states i mean come on right what, whose land are we on over there right where are you where are you talking to us from chuck yeah <sighs> potawatomi people the land of the potawatomi as well as the sack and the fox and the many other miami the kickapoo jeffy yeah. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful.
It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, on November twenty first, nineteen nineteen, one hundred and four years ago, this week in Bogalusa, Louisiana, representatives of the so-called Self Preservation and Loyalty League. That's a scary title for a group in Louisiana in 1919. They showed up at the home of Saul Dacus, an African-American labor organizer and union leader. The League was a group of white men organized by the Great Southern Lumber Company, at that time the largest sawmill in the world, which had built the town of Bogalusa, owned it, and was its dominant employer. So one of those awful exploitative company towns that libertarians are working hard to make a reality again today. In the wake of a recent lynching and a strike, the lumber company had fired a number of its workers who had refused the company's demand that they burn their union cards. And now the company thugs were looking for Saul Dacus, who had been organizing sawmill workers. And again, somebody's mic is hot over there, by the way. Not finding out at home, uh, not finding him at home, they shot up and destroyed his house and stole $1,300 worth of World War I savings stamps, which were a smaller denomination counterpart to the Liberty bonds sold by the federal government to finance U.S. participation in the recent U- uh, European struggle, World War One, the Great War, and nothing quite says liberty like stealing bonds to finance said liberty. Though the goons failed to lynch Dacus, they left his demolished home apparently feeling confident they they'd given him a good warning to stop his union work. But Bogalusa was different from what most towns in the Jim Crow South in that significant cooperation existed between black and white workers there who were working toward a merger of their two previously segregated unions. And on the very next day, November 22nd, 1919, 104 years ago this week, Saul Dacus appeared in the center of town walking down the main street of Bogalusa, Louisiana, accompanied by several white union men two of whom carried shotguns. This living image of interracial cooperation was just too much for the local police, who of course were essentially a private militia owned by the Great Southern Lumber Company. So the cops made their move, caught up with Dacus and his group at a downtown garage, and a riot ensued, culminating in a shootout. Amid the chaos, Dacus somehow managed to escape with his life, But four of the white men defending him were killed, along with one of the company thugs. Several other men were wounded or arrested, and in the days that followed, federal troops were sent in to quiet things down in Bogalusa, which had become one more hotspot in the wave of racist violence that swept the United States in 19-freaking-19. And I'm betting it's a moment in history that is rarely noted because of the cooperation between white and black union members. Now, that's Rotten History, and this is hell. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience and share the rest of our listeners' answers if there are any more. Uh, let's see here. The question from hell, once again, is what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? Do you have any more responses, or is that it? Uh, let's see here. I do not have any more responses. That's what I thought. Uh, So Chris Beast, I really liked what he said, uh, that I'm alive from moment to moment thanks to trillions of decisions being made for my benefit at the cellular level, not to Joe Biden. Erica E. saying that my intellect might be pessimistic for a reason. Uh, Genevieve saying the clean clothes and the dresser folded, not messily stacked on top of it. 
Old Grouch replied that clean clothes actually make it past the stack on top of the driver and folded to Navy regulation. Essential saying the biohazard in the sink. But my favorite answer to this week's question from hell again, which I got to have to go back here and read the exact question from hell because I can't remember what it was. What obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of? Of all evidence, I think the very best answer to this week's question from hell comes from Dig Dug. His answer is Kojido ergo in inferno sum, or I think, therefore, I am in hell. Congratulations, Dig Dug. All you have to do is contact us in any way, Facebook, Twitter, email, Patreon, Discord, whatever. Tell us what your uh, mailing address is and which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you'd like, and we'll get it in the mail to you as fast as possible. Congratulations, Dick Doug. My answer to this week's question from Mel, what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? And that would be the neurological impact of football on players' brains and the neurological impact of me watching football on my own brain thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell chris who is our confirmed guest for next week's show it will be writer christopher ketchum returns to talk about his new article at harper's the machine breaker inside the mind of an eco-terrorist it's an amazing article it's really good chris has always done done great writing but this is really great in fact we got an email because of chris ketchum Uh, An email from Nandita. She writes, Dear Chuck, I heard your episode with my colleague Christopher Ketchum on the the impossibilities of green growth and got your contact information from him. Damn it, Chris. I've since started uh, following your work and find it very relevant to what we're doing. Thanks for your great podcast. I'd love to join you as a guest to discuss my work on the links between pronatalism, human supremacy, and population growth, a topic that has become too taboo among the left to discuss as how that has emboldened the oldest form of reproductive control to flourish, pronatalism, especially among right-wing nationalists and religious groups. I am the executive director of Population Balance, where I also co-host the Overpopulation podcast. We've had guests on like Naomi Oreskes, Carl Safina, Partha Dasgupta, Bill Rees, and Eileen Christ. You can see some of my writing at Counterpunch, Guardian, Newsweek, and uh, Chris Ketchum is interviewing me on an upcoming Truth Dig piece, so that should be out soon as well. I also teach a graduate course on the subject. The world is on fire like you. We're doing crucial work in trying to shake people out of free market techno-fundamentalism, anthropocentric, and growth-first growthist, I should say, uh, oblivion and are looking for bigger platforms like yours to raise awareness. Thanks so much for considering. Best regards, Nandita. Wow, your platform must be really small if ours is bigger than yours, Nandita. So it looks like I will be researching Nandita's work because while we have had guests on the show to talk about overpopulation, which is a loaded term in itself, we have had more, uh, far more often talk about how overpopulation if you will, is a distraction from the problems with capitalism and its dependence on exploitation for its success. But thanks, Nandita, for reaching out to us, and it looks like I have some more reading to do over the upcoming holiday weekend. Also on next week's show, Seb Vipper uh, will be sharing another past inside the present, and this one's about settler colonialism. We'll have This Week in Rotten History from Rinaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin will be doing another Moment of Truth, second part of today's Moment of Truth. Huge thank you to this week's producers, Chris Coolfan, Dan Kugler, 
Will Ippen, thanks to Sebastian Vupper, Ronaldo and Jeff, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, and Pete Balavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow. Thir- talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. I think we're going to be playing it on Friday because who's going to have a chance to actually listen on Thursday? Uh, but on, on uh, our next Patreon podcast, I'll be raking the times over the coals for a ludicrous story on young people, TikTok, and their impact on next year's presidential election. And we're sharing a 2002 conversation we had with so-called eco-terrorist. So tune in for that. This is how office hours are meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. Return next week, Wednesday, November 29th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And I look forward to seeing you all there. But if you are in town, maybe getting together with friends from the old neighborhood or visiting family, or if you are hosting the holiday and would like to get out of the house on the day before the big meal, drop by Carrie's as DJ Mixon will be performing. That's MXN. And according to the ad for the event at Carrie's Lounge, it looks like there's going to be donuts and pies. Don't forget, beginning Monday, December 4th, and running through all of December, as well as during the first week in January, this is how we'll be live streaming, podcasting, and airing the very best of 2023. Our favorite interviews of the year, as selected by listeners and staff of This Is Hell. Tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were your favorite guests, and if we play any of the conversations you have suggested, we'll thank you personally on air. All you have to do is send us your favorite or favorites to chuck at thisishell.com. DM them to us via exit. This is Hell Radio. Post them in our Discord community under our announcement in the general category. Uh, message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishell or leave your reply to the comments on our Facebook page or in our Facebook group, Welcome to the Hellhole, or just share them with us via the announcement on Patreon. We also hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th, winter solstice eve for the annual This Is Hell holiday office party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way you can get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.